All right, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness, for your word. Lamp into our feet and light into our path. And Lord, we just thank you for the privilege of sitting here today. Thank you for the privilege of having your word that's been preserved to us for all these centuries, that we can just sit here and read it and read it together. And Lord, what, a, what an amazing privilege that is. And so Lord, help us never to take it for granted. We know it's in our nature to do that. And so um, help us just to appreciate you today and all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would, turn to Ezekiel chapter 26. Lord willing, this morning we'll get through 26 and 27. And uh, pretty amazing, uh, amazing, amazing. It was worthy of three amazings. Uh, prophecy that we're going to read about this morning. All right. Everybody got your prophecy hat on? All right. Good, good. Um, so Ezekiel is in Babylon. He was carried off captive in uh, 597 B.C. Uh, again, interestingly, I'll remind you, uh, he was in the line of the priesthood, so he would have been, uh, and, and it was about uh, near his 30th birthday that he was carried off to Babylon. And so here's a guy with all these hopes and dreams of, frankly, a pretty good gig in the Jewish uh, culture of being a priest. And lo and behold, he finds himself uh, carried off to Babylon uh, with all the other captives, well, with many of the other captives. And, um, and yet, even in those circumstances, certainly not what he expected. Uh, anybody ever find themselves in a position or a place where you weren't expecting to be? Might even call it disappointing. Um, well, so there's Ezekiel for you. And, um, and so he's there. He's prophesying to the captives. Pretty much the same message that Jeremiah is prophesying to those that remain back in Jerusalem. And the, the message is that uh, the judgment's coming. And so just overviewing, we talked about this a little bit last week. The first 24 chapters of the book of Ezekiel were about judgment that's coming to uh, Judah and specifically the capital Jerusalem. And then from chapters 25 to 32, he prophesies a little bit uh, regarding some of the surrounding nations, the enemies of the Jewish people. And then from uh, 33 to the end of the book, he's going to talk um, more about future events, which is also exciting. Last week, he started, we started... Uh, the surrounding nations. We talked about Ammon, Moab, Edom, and the Philistines. And today we talk about the city of Tyre. Everybody ready? Tyre. Everybody say Tyre. And if you Google Tyre, T-Y-R-E, just like itself, right? Because, you know, when you do a Bible study, you do it with Google. I don't know how anybody did it before. But anyway, you do it with Google and uh, you get a picture of a bunch of tires, car tires. They think you spelled it wrong. <laughs> Did you mean tire? No, I didn't mean tire. I meant tire. So anyway, uh, if it's not a familiar term to you, there you go. It wasn't to Google either. But tire um, was a super, super powerful, wealthy nation or city in the ancient world. And it was really basically the capital of the Phoenician uh, people, and the Phoenicians, if you think about it, they were, think of them as 
the early uh, sort of uh, Apple Microsoft people, right? They were the ones skillful in making tools and accordingly weapons and stuff like that. So the Phoenicians were very powerful. Uh, their, their people spread all over the place, uh, mostly along the Mediterranean Sea, but their capital was a city called Tyre, right? And uh, for the sake of you being able to see that city Tyre, we didn't blow it up, but you know, they were located on this seaport uh, of the Mediterranean Sea and as you can imagine, or you may have heard before, in the ancient world, right, if you were on a seaport or if you had access to uh, water transportation, then that was a, a tremendous source of revenue. And so they were very wealthy. They also, this is kind of a funny thing, at least I thought it was funny. You guys think it's funny? You don't know yet. Uh, they also had this thing, it's kind of funny. They, because they were in the, uh, in the, sea there on the edge of the sea, they capitalized on the shellfish that's called murex, M-U-R-E-X, and they could harvest purple dye from the murex shellfish. And in the ancient world, purple dye was a sign of wealth, it was a sign of like royalty, and you were super cool if you had purple dye, okay? I just say that to say Stupid things that define wealth and significance have been around for a long time, right? Today we have our stupid thing. It may or may not be purple dye. God bless you if you like, if you like wearing purple. Um, doesn't mean anything now. Something else means something, but that's a whole other thing. But anyway, so I'll, suffice to say, these guys were very rich, very prosperous, and accordingly, very proud. Very proud. What do you think happens to proud people in the Bible? Let's read about it. So, chapter 26, verse 1. And it came to pass in the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, because Tyre has said against Jerusalem, Aha! She is broken, who was the gateway of the peoples. Now she is turned over to me. I shall be filled. She is laid waste. Now you recall last week, uh, if you were here, one of the things that uh, we noticed that kind of kept kind of a recurrent theme, if you will, of these other nations that are around Judah is that when Judah was conquered by the Babylonians, there were a bunch of her neighbors that all said, aha, okay? The modern vernacular is na-na-na-na-na-na, okay? So they said that, and God didn't like that, okay? So God's going to deal with them. The fact that God deals with somebody else the fact that God deals with the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem because of their idolatry doesn't make anyone else relatively more righteous, right? We're all sinners in the eyes of God, and we need to get our heads around that. We're all sinners around the eyes of God. So Tyre said, uh-huh. Uh, Tyre wanted to plunder the, the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, you know, interestingly, they had previously had good relations with uh, the nation of Israel during the reign of, of David and Solomon. Um, but by this time they hadn't. And just a reminder, Genesis chapter 12, going further back into history, when God told Abraham, I'm going to make out of you a great nation. He's talking about the Jewish people, right? One of the things he promised Abraham was, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And can I suggest that is a good foreign policy position even today? 
and it was a good foreign policy decision in the 6th century BC. And so uh, in the 6th century BC, uh, Tyre decided that they would curse uh, Abraham's people, and this is what we're going to read. You don't want to be on the wrong side of God, and so therefore you don't want to be on the wrong side of the Jewish people. History has proven that over and over and over again. And so uh, that's particularly relevant as the uh, world powers play out their, their various convictions. Verse 3. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause many nations, what did I just read there? Many nations, to come up against you as the sea causes its waves to come up. And they, what did I read there? They. They shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. That sounds pretty, pretty specific, don't you think? It shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. It shall become plunder for the nations. Also her daughter villages which are in the fields shall be slain by the sword. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. And if you've been with us for any time during the book of Ezekiel, at the end of each one of these things, it seems like over and over and over and over again, God says, then they shall know that I am the Lord. God wants us to know that He is the Lord, right? He doesn't do that necessarily by, you know, punishing for pe people for fun or, or anything like that, but God wants us to know that He is the Lord, right? And we could, we could embrace that and appreciate that, uh, and we don't necessarily have to go through the punishment in order to know that, but one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, God's going to bring judgment to Tyre. He says in the beginning of verse 3, he says, therefore. And so he's going to bring judgment uh, because of what we read in the first couple verses. And he says, I'm going to bring many nations up against you. And then he says, uh, he follows that with the pronoun they. So, grammar snobs. Are there any grammar snobs in the room? Okay, there's three of us. Okay. Um, grammar snobs in the room. If you've got a noun, right, and then you've got a pronoun that's pretty shortly after that, it probably refers back to that noun. Did I lose anybody? Okay, good. So, many nations, they. Everybody good? Good, plural, singular and plural. There's lots of things we could go, there's lots of roads we could go down with pronouns that we're not going to go down. We're not going to dip, right? We're just talking about many nations and they, okay? So that's where we're at with that. Even my son Nate said, don't go down the pronoun road, please. <laughs> so if Nate tells me to be on my best behavior, wow. Okay, so anyway, he says many nations, they're going to come against you. He says it's going to be so broken down that it'll be like the top of a rock. The word tire literally means rock. And he says also, I will scrape her dust from her. Now, does that sound specific? How does God generally fulfill prophecy? Specifically or like it's all an allegory? Anybody been through this school before? Right? God is very specific. God is very literal. And God keeps His word. You can set your clock by it. 
So he goes on, he says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'll bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses and chariots, with horsemen, and an army with many people. That's kind of weird. We went from they and many nations, now we're going to Nebuchadnezzar, king of kings. Well, maybe we just mean they because he's the king of kings in, in the ancient world. So maybe it just means something like that. So he is specifying Nebuchadnezzar. And then he says, He will slay with the sword your daughter villages in the fields. He will heap up a siege mound against you, build a wall against you, and raise a defense against you. He will direct his battering rams against your walls, and with his axes he will break down your towers. And so, sure enough, God prophesies Nebuchadnezzar is going to come, and he's going to do all this damage uh, in your midst. He's going to bring a lot of destruction. And we know this is the technique, right? This is, this is Nebuchadnezzar's technique. He did it to the uh, city of Jerusalem. And lo and behold, history would play out and, uh, that right about the end of the siege on Jerusalem, and you know, this, as we've said before, basically the, the strategy would be that they would surround the city, right? Usually a walled city or whatever. They would surround that city and basically forbid any uh, merchandising to go out or come in and, and food and supplies and water and, and all of that for necessary for life. Basically starve them out and then after a period of time the, the people inside the city are so weakened that they're easy prey when you go in and conquer, right? And so we know that that went on for about a year and a half in the city of Jerusalem. Sure enough, they then tore down the walls, they went in, and uh, the people in Jerusalem were easy to pick off by that time. They were, they were basically starving to death, right? So, lo and behold, history shows that right after uh, Nebuchadnezzar does this to Jerusalem, he moves on to Tyre and lays siege to Tyre for 13 years. For 13 years after, uh, after the conquest of Jerusalem. So Nebuchadnezzar is pretty determined, he's pretty deliberate, uh, he's pretty thorough, and uh, so that's what he does. He's, he lays siege to, um, to Tyre. In verse 10 it goes on, Because of the abundance of his horses, their dust will cover you, your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen, the wagons, and the chariots, when he enters, enters your gates, as men enter a city that has been breached. With the hooves of his horses, he will trample all your streets. He will slay your people by the sword, and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. And so what happened was, sure enough, uh, they lay siege, and then after 13 years, they tear down the walls, they go into the city. Guess what they found? They found an abandoned city. They found an abandoned city. Because I said tires on the coast, right? Well, for those 13 years, right, the people in Tyre, they said... Well, we know what happens when Nebuchadnezzar and his army surrounds a city. It doesn't look good for us. And so what they did, they, uh, they secured an island about a half mile offshore. And during those 13 years, while the Babylonians got them surrounded and flexing their muscles, they're sort of building up this city offshore, right? And the Babylonians come in and they conquer the city that is now abandoned. And the Ty- we'll call them Tyrenians. The Tyrenians are hanging out on the island, chilling, right? So, did, did Nebuchadnezzar come in as prophesied? Yeah. Did he destroy the city as prophesied? Yeah, he did. And now verse 12, they, 
Now, you that are all grammar snobs now, because we're all grammar snobs, we settled that about 15 minutes ago, right? This they, now what's it refer to? Nebuchadnezzar? Well, maybe it means Nebuchadnezzar's army. There'd be more than one of them, right? But maybe it refers back to the many nations, which was the original noun that went with the pronoun they. Is that fair? Maybe something else is going on. He says, they will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. They will lay your stones, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. Well, that's also kind of specific. So now they refers back to other nations. It says they're going to lay your stones, your timber, and your soil into the midst of the water. That's pretty specific. Here's the punchline. You ready for the punchline? I'm setting you up, right? You always know when there's a punchline coming, right? I'm setting you up. At least it's not a joke. So 240 years after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city, Alexander the Great comes by. He takes the city, he takes all that rubble that Nebuchadnezzar had left 240 years prior, and what's he do? He breaks down the... Wait a minute, i got to make sure i got my, my verses right. Yeah, he basically lays your timber, your soil, your stones into the midst of the water. What did he do? He built a bridge out to that island half a mile off. Just marched right out there and conquered now the tire. Tyre City, the new, the new city of Tyre that's now an island out in the, out in the middle of the water, half a half mile out. What's the point in all that? Did many nations conquer Tyre? Yes, and actually in their later history, uh, uh, the Muslims came in and uh, so for 240 years it looked like uh, God sort of partially fulfilled the, the prophecy. And then uh, later Muslims occupied it in 7th century AD, and then Christian crusaders came in after that, and, and the history goes on. But the point is, at least in these, er in these early years, Babylon came in, they lay siege to the city for 13 years, ne uh, Alexander the Great comes in 240 years later. I want you to catch this. 240 years later and basically finishes this prophecy. Now, let's say you're a theologian 20 years before the time of Alexander the Great. Okay? And let's say you're reading this prophecy before Alexander the Great comes. Said many nations, yep, Nebuchadnezzar came in and kind of knocked out the city. The city kind of said, you know, prophecy sounded like the city was going to go down, but, you know, basically just moved out into the water a little bit. And maybe God kind of fulfilled that and kind of didn't. And maybe that's how God kind of rolls. Maybe he kind of, maybe I just misinterpreted it and it's not quite as obvious as it looks like. And maybe God just, you know, when he says I'm going to, you know, lay your stones, your timber, and your soil into the midst of the water. Maybe that was just kind of some of the overflow that happened when Nebuchadnezzar came in. Right? Isn't that what we do sometimes? Right? Imagine you'd been waiting for, let's say, 220 years for God to finish off what he said he was going to do. Right? I think this applies to us. Because I think... Well, let's just read on a couple more verses. 
Verse 13, I'll put an end to the sound of your songs and the sound of your harps shall be heard no more. I will make you like the top of a rock. You shall be a place for spreading nets and you shall never be rebuilt for I, the Lord, have spoken, says the Lord. And so Tyre was initially, you know, they started it with Nebuchadnezzar and then Alexander builds this, builds this bridge of rubble, right, out to that island and destroys the city. Different people sort of occupied it over various times, but it never was really rebuilt to its former glory by any means, right? If we didn't have the Old Testament, would we know? If you didn't have the Old Testament, would you know uh, anything about Rome throughout the pages of history? The right answer is yes. Good, good. Would you know anything about Tyre? You ever heard of Tyre outside of stories like this? No, it's never, it, never, it never regained its former glory. It's basically a, fi- a fishing village, right? And so, um, I thought this is kind of cool. So this is what it looks like today. This is on Google Maps, right? So there you go. There's the, uh, you know, there's the mainland right there. There's the city half mile out that they did. And then, uh, you know, over time, right, a few centuries, the causeway that Alexander built has been, you know, kind of expanded a little bit and, and they grew up on it, but basically that's what, that's what it looks like even today, right? So it's a fulfillment of prophecy straight out of the pages of Ezekiel. How does God fulfill prophecy? Literally or metaphorically? Okay, so literally, completely literally or literally like sort of, kind of? Well, what about if I feel disappointed and He hasn't really delivered on the promises that I thought He gave me? I set you up, didn't I? You ever feel like that? You ever feel like that? Okay, well, you say, well, I'm not a prophecy buff. Okay, these prophecy people, they're kind of weird, right? Right? They're always talking about current events, and they read, they read too much, and, you know, prophecy people. Okay, what about this? Turn over to your right, if you would, to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6 verse 9 and I had us turn over to this because I want us to see this with our eyes and read it with read it with our eyes and I want this to sink deep into our hearts frankly and I want you to think about Tyre and I want you to think about how it Babylonians came in and they sort of took Tyre but it didn't quite match. I mean, he literally said, I'm going to scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. When those Greeks are pushing the dust, literally scraping the dust to build a bridge, right? But for 240 years, it seemed like that wasn't going to happen. How about this? Galatians 6.9, let us not grow weary while doing good. For tomorrow, we shall reap if we don't lose heart. Did your Bible say that? No. no. I set you up again. It says in due season. Now who defines due season? My emotions? My discontent? My impatience? Whether or not 
Everybody in my world responds like I think they should? Not at all. Can I tell you this? This is heavy on my heart. I interact with lots of people week in and week out who are doing good. They know the Lord. And I know I'm talking to believers by and large. Maybe completely. So they know the Lord. They've embarked on this journey we call Christianity. They started out even as the rest of Galatians says, in the Spirit. Then life happens somewhere along the way. Is this relevant? Somewhere in that 240-year period. Like, some of you are thinking, yeah, I get it, waiting around for prophecy to be fulfilled for 240 years. I've been waiting for six months for mine. Can't imagine 240 years, right? But you're like, Life happens. Disappointment happens. Disillusionment happens. Circumstances don't work out like I thought they would. I was talking to a guy last week. Guys, the Lord's done an amazing work in this guy's life. An amazing work in this guy's life. Clearly, absolutely no-brainer that God has done a work in this guy's life. If you knew the story, you'd say, oh yeah, for sure. And yet, fast forward a few years, and he said to me last week, things haven't worked out like I had hoped they would. You ever feel that way? You ever feel that way? Does that mean you should throw in the towel? Does that mean God can't quite cross the finish line with, for you? Does that mean God is worthy of our sort of intellectual worship, but in terms of my day-to-day decisions and doing what the Bible says, it just, that Christianity thing is just not working it. You ever feel that way? If we're honest, we all feel that way at some point or another. But the Bible says, don't grow weary in doing good, for in due season... And God defines good due season. In due season, we shall reap if we don't lose heart. And I think you don't have to be a prophecy buff to appreciate the application of the prophecy about Tyre. Because the reality is it looked like it was done, sort of, maybe. But maybe, we, maybe God's not quite going to finish it off like He said He was. God always does it like He says He was. Yeah. Right? So we need, to, we need to hang on to that. We need to hang on to that. And so then as we go through the rest of this in, into 27, basically it talks more about sort of the why, and these are further warnings for us. All right? So lesson number one, don't grow weary in doing good. God does not do a half job. God does not do a half job. So he says, 
Thus says, verse 15, thus says the Lord God to Tyre, will the coastlands not shake at the sound of your fall when the wounded, when the wounded cry, when slaughter is made in the midst of you, when all the princes of the sea will come down from their thrones, lay aside their robes and take off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground, tremble every moment and be astonished at you. And so the downfall of Tyre is going to be a very visible and uh, very dramatic. Verse 17, And they will take up a lamentation for you and say to you, How you have perished, O one inhabited by seafaring men, O renowned city who was strong at sea, she and her inhabitants, who caused their terror to be on all her inhabitants. Now the coastlands tremble in the day of your fall. Yes, the coastlands by the sea are troubled at your departure. So, People are going to be moved to lamentation, to mourning and weeping, even for this great city that went down. For thus says the Lord God, when I make you a desolate city like cities that are not inhabited, when I bring the deep upon you and great waters cover you, then I will bring you down with those who descend into the pit to the people of old, and I will make you dwell in the lowest parts of the earth, in places desolate from antiquity, with those who go down to the pit so that you may never be inhabited, and I shall establish glory in the land of the living. I will make you a terror, and you shall be no more, though you are sought for. You will never be found again, says the Lord God. So the idea here is, I remember when uh, back in, um, after 2000, in 2008, everybody remember 2008? You remember, what happened, remember what happened in America in 2008? Many of you remember it very personally, right? There was a phrase I'd never heard before until then. Too big to fail. You heard that phrase? Too big to fail. Like there are some banks that might be too big to fail. Or there are some institutions that might be too big to fail, or too, some businesses might be too big to fail. And we can't let them fail because that has so much ripple effect on the rest of the economy and sociology and lots of other complicated things. But in the eyes of God, there's nothing that's too big to fail. Babel, the Tower of Babel in its day, was pretty crazy successful, but not too big to fail right? In the 6th century B.C., well, minus 240 years, Tyre was not too big to fail, though they would have thought so, right? Now, as we read through into chapter 27, I want us to consider the place we live, right? Are we too big to fail? Do we think subconsciously, if I didn't set us up in church on Sunday morning, reading Old Testament prophecy about a nation that did fail? Absent of all of that, would we maybe think we're too big to fail? We're world power, right? And now this is, you know, part of my prophecy brain as I'm reading through this, right? Pride comes before a what? Fall. Set your watch by it. Pride comes before a fall. Right? Now, God deals with nations. We've talked about this through these prophetic books. God deals with nations. God deals with individuals. Okay? Individually, 
God always preserves a remnant. Please hear this. God always preserves a remnant, right? Because if you're not careful, you can read some of these things about nations and how God deals with cultures and nations and, and all that. And you're like, whoa, there's no hope for me. I'm going to get swept off into the, you know, into the sea. No, God always preserves a remnant, right? Whoever, whoever, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, right? For God so loved the world, right? We need to be reminded of that. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, Jesus Christ, so that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life, right? That's how it applies to us as individuals. But as nations, God deals with nations. We see this through the Scripture. God deals very specifically with nations, and there's a, there's a, there's a cultural pride that often predates the nation's fall. Now, God can do whatever He wants. God is God. I'm not God. I'm not saying what God is going to do. I'm not predicting the downfall of America or anything like that. What I'm saying is we as a people need to be humble. We as a people need to recognize culturally, historically, whatever, that God established this nation, right? I mean, it's always amazing to me whenever I go back to a, you know, a a place to, you know, you look at, you go to any kind of museum or battlefield or, or monument or anything like that related to our, the birth of our nation. You can't, I can't come up with any conclusion other than, wow, God did that. God did that. We were, I mean, I'm not a history scholar. I'm a grammar snob, but not a history scholar. Okay? We were out, outmanned, right? We were seriously outmanned. And God takes a bunch of, like, you know, whatever your brain wants to go, right? In my mind, I go back to Johnny Tremaine movies that I saw in fifth grade, right? Bunch of guys, Minutemen, that have day jobs, that like you can snap your fingers and a bunch of them come out of the woodwork and they overtake the strongest army in the world? Is that weird to anybody? It should be weird. God shed His grace on thee. And we should know that as a culture. The people of Tyre, too big to fail. We're on top of, we've, got, we've got purple dye from the Murex shell. Really? Congratulations. Right? And how, how much do we rely on something that's really kind of like purple dye as a culture? Chapter 27. The word of the Lord came again to me saying, Now, son of man, take up a lamentation for Tyre and say to Tyre, You who are situated at the entrance of the sea, merchant of the peoples on many coastlands, thus says the Lord, O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. Now you may be beautiful, right? But don't say, I am perfect in beauty, right? That's just a bad thing to say. Don't say that. Beware of strength. Beware of wealth. I say this to Americans. Beware of strength. Beware of wealth. One of the um, 
good kings in the nation of Judah. Uh, I love the history of the kings. And as we read the history of the kings uh, through Kings and Chronicles, there are these great little nuggets of biblical wisdom we see in the character of these guys. Fair enough? One of my favorites is King Uzziah. First Chronicles chapter 26. 26, you can turn there if you want. Everybody, First Chronicles 26. Now turn to Second Chronicles 26. And don't think I'm a perfect note taker. All right. Starting in verse 3. Uzziah was 16. Just, just, and if you don't, I wanted you to read Galatians 6 9 with your eyes, right? If you want to just listen to this one with your ears, it kind of flows, right? Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He sought the Lord in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Now he went out and made war against the Philistines and broke down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jeb. Jabna and the wall of Ashdod, and he built cities around Ashdod and among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines, against the Arabians who lived in Gerbaal, and against the Munites. Also the Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah. His fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt, for he became exceedingly strong. This guy's a rock star, right? exceedingly strong. And Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, at the corner buttress of the wall. Then he fortified them and he built towers in the desert. He dug many wells for his, he had much livestock, both in the lowlands and in the plains. He also had farmers and vine dressers in the mountains and in Carmel, for he loved the soil. That's my, I like that. That's underlined in my Bible. He loved the soil, right? If you're a gardener, I'm sort of a sort of a gardener. I love the soil, right? There's something cool about planting something, and you love the soil. Anyway, that's, that's sidetracked. He loved the soil. He's, this guy is rich in everything he touches. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of fighting men who went out to war by companies according to the number on their roll as prepared by Jael, the scribe, and Masiah, the officer under the hand of Hananiah, one of the king's captains. The total number of the chief officers and mighty men of valor was 2,600. And under their authority was an army of 307,500 that made war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. Then Uzziah prepared for them, for the entire army, shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows and slings to cast stones. And he made devices in Jerusalem invented by skillful men to be on the towers and, on the, and the corners to shoot arrows and large stones. And so this guy, I mean, he was, he was technologically advanced. He had, he had you know gardens. He had fortresses. He had Ammonites paying tribute to him. He was a rock star king. So his fame spread far and wide, for he was marvelously helped. These words are underlined in my Bible. Till he became strong. Till he became strong. Till he became strong. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. 
to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So you can flip back to Ezekiel. Notice this. His fame spread far and wide, for he was marvelously helped till he became strong. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. And the rest of the story, we won't read it for detail. But basically, who could go into the, who could go into the, the Holy of Holies of the temple? Only the priests, right? And the high priest on the Day of Atonement. But he's like, I'm the king. I got Ammonites giving me tribute. I got vineyards. I got a big army. I got captains over a big army. I got everything. I got weapons for my big army. I'm learning how to develop, you know, things that'll throw rocks and arrows. I'm, I got all this. I can go into the, I can go into the temple. And they say, no, you can't. Yes, I can. No, I can't. Yes, you can. Yes, I can. Right? And then you know what happened when he was in that temple? He became a leper. God smote him with leprosy right there on the spot. And he became a leper till the day of his death. Please learn the lesson of Uzziah. Please learn the lesson of, of Uzziah. The fact that God has blessed us should cause us to say, thank you. The fact that God has blessed our nation should cause us to say, thank you. Neither should cause us to say, I am perfect in beauty. 1 Peter 5, verse 5 through 7 says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. So it goes on, just describes basically all the wealth and all the things that made them think they were too big to fail. Verse 4, your borders are in the midst of the seas. Your builders have perfected your beauty. They made all your planks of fir trees from Sinir. They took a cedar from Lebanon to make you a mast. And of oaks from Bashan, they made your oars. The company of Asherites have laid, inlaid your planks with ivory from the coasts of Cyprus. Fine embroidered linen from Egypt was what you spread for your sail. Blue and purple from the coasts of Elisha was what covered you. Inhabitants of Sidon and Arvad were your oarsmen, O wise men. Your wise men, O Tyre, were in you. They became your pilots. Elders of Gebal and its wise men were in you to caulk your seams. All the ships of the sea and their oarsmen were in you to market your merchandise. Those from Persia, Lydia, and Libya were, on, were in your army as men of war. They hung shield and helmet in you. They gave splendor to you. Men of Arvad with your army were on your walls all around, and the men of Gamad were in your towers. They hung your she their shields on your walls all around. They made your beauty perfect. Sounds a little bit like the reign of Uzziah, doesn't it? These guys are rock stars as well. They got, and they're, they're, you know, they're, they've got a command of the sea. They were... They were super wealthy, super prosperous, highly regarded. Tarshish, verse 12, Tarshish was your merchant because of your many luxury goods. Tarshish, you may recall, was all the way over in Spain, right? Remember when, jo when God told Jonah, hey, why don't you go uh, preach to Nineveh and tell him that judgment's coming? Jonah gets on the first boat headed to Tarshish. Why? Because that was the other end of the world. If there's a chance to get away from God... To flee the presence of God? Is that possible, by the way? No. If there's, but if there's a chance to flee the presence of God, I bet I can do it in Tarshish. That's what Jonah thought, right? So he goes all the way to Tarshish. So what the, what's that tell us? These people of Tyre, they had a command of basically the entire Mediterranean Sea all the way over to Spain. 
Imagine that. They gave you silver, iron, tin, and lead for your goods. Javan, Tubal, and Meshach were your traders. They bartered human lives and vessels of bronze for your merchandise. Pause. What did they barter? Human lives. So you got merchandise, human lives, all kind of just, just kind of slid one in there on you, right? Merchandise, luxury goods, ivory, human lives, right? Now, we don't have slavery in our country today, but do we sometimes place stuff above human lives? Yeah. Yeah. Even on the smallest level, when there's a little contention in the home, right? Sometimes, uh, Tracy will say this, not contention between she and I, we don't, we don't do that, but with the kids, not with the older kids because they don't do that either, but with the younger kids, okay, with the grandkids, she says, she'll say, now what's important? Well, God, and they know the answer, well, God, people, relationships, so that thing you're fighting over. You're raising that in importance above relationships, right? So we're not talking just, I mean, slavery is bad, right? But anything that elevates a thing, a coveted thing, over a human being, be careful, right? Be careful. They bartered all this stuff, human lives, vessels of bronze for your merchandise. Those from the house of Togarma traded for your wares with horses, steeds, and mules. The men of Dedan were your traders. Many isles were the market of your hand. They brought you ivory tusks and ebony as payment. Syria was your merchant because of the abundance of goods you made. They gave you for your wares emeralds, purple embroidery, fine linen, corals, and rubies. Judah and the land of Israel were your traders. They traded for your merchandise, wheat of Minneth, millet, honey oil, and balm. Damascus was your merchant because of the abundance of goods you made, because of your many luxury items, with the wine of Helbon and with white wool. Dan and Javan paid for your, wage, for your wares, traversing back and forth. Wrought iron, cassia, and cane were among your merchandise. Do you get the idea here? These guys were wealthy. Dedan was your merchant in saddlecloths for riding Arabia, and all the princes of Kedar were your regular merchants. They traded with you in lambs, rams, and goats. The merchants of Sheba and Ramah were your merchants. They traded with your wares of the choicest spices, all kinds of precious stones and gold. Haran, Kenna, Eden, the merchants of Sheba, Assyria, and Chilmad were your merchants. These were your merchants in choice items in purple clothes and embroidered, item, embroidered garments and chests of multicolored apparel and sturdy woven cords which were in your marketplace. So again, notice these, uh, I mean, not to belabor the point, but you get the idea that they traded with lots of places, lots of other nations, and I want you to notice also the kind of stuff they traded, the kind of stuff they were able to acquire, not necessarily food and shelter, right? They're talking about, you know, gold and fine spices and... and you know, precious stones and, and, you know, again, purple clothes, embroidered garments, stuff like that, right? Now, is it wrong to have those things? Is it wrong to have those things? No. But we've got to be very careful about those things. I'm speaking to myself. We've got to be very careful about those things. And it's interesting... Number one, the great wealth that they had, 
Number two, the, the multitude of nations that wanted to trade with them. But even the items that we're talking about being traded are a little bit telling. And again, you know, I want to be careful, you know, because, you know, we are blessed in so many ways. But the reality is, these guys, it got to their heads. And that's not an uncommon thing. Verse 25. The ships of Tarshish, again, all the way over in Spain, were carriers of your merchandise. You were filled and very glorious in the midst of the seas. Your oarsmen brought you into many waters, but the east wind broke you in the midst of the seas. So there's an east wind, right? So we're starting to see cracks in the foundation now, right? You guys are doing awesome. Everybody wants to trade with you. They're sending your goods all the way to Tarshish. But oh, by the way, there's an east wind. Who controls the east wind? God does. God does. God controls the east wind. There's lots of east winds in life. We want to be on the right side of God. Verse 27, your riches, wares, and merchandise, your mariners and pilots, your caulkers and merchandisers, all your men of the war who are in you, and the entire company which is in your midst will fall into the midst of the seas on the day of your ruin. The common land will shake at the sound of the cry of your pilots. So all this riches and merchandise, it's going to fall into the sea one day. All who handle the oar, the mariners, and all the pilots of the sea will come down from their ships and stand on the shore. They will make their voice heard because of you. They will cry bitterly and cast dust on their heads. They will roll about in ashes. They will shave themselves completely bald because of you, gird themselves with sackcloth and weep for you with bitterness of heart and bitter wailing. In their wailing for you, they will take up a lamentation and lament for you. What city is like Tyre, destroyed in the midst of the sea? When your wares went out by the sea, you satisfied many people. You enriched the kings of the earth with your many luxury goods and your merchandise. But you are broken by the seas in the depths of the waters. Your merchandise and the entire company will fall in your midst. All the inhabitants of the isles will be astonished at you. Their kings will be greatly afraid and their countenance will be troubled. The merchants among the peoples will hiss at you. You will become a horror and be no more forever. All those traders and all those merchants and all those friends love to do business with you. Now you're a horror and will be no more forever. They hiss at you, right? Now, we don't hiss at each other, right? Cats do that, but we don't. Right? But all these people that thought Tyre was all that, man, if you were Tyre, you were cool. We want to be like Tyre when we grow up, right? Doesn't that speak to our culture, honestly? And wouldn't we do well as a nation and as an individual to recognize what God has done in our lives and say thank you and live accordingly? So, Number one, number one, God's Word never fails. Literally. Completely. Don't grow weary in doing good. For in due season, defined by God, you shall reap if you do not lose heart. Don't grow weary in doing good. 
Keep doing good. Stay on the path. Well, I feel like God's far away. Well, did, did he move? Well, I feel like it's just not working out like I thought it would. I love Habakkuk. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. You know, honestly, deep down, when we do that thing where we say, you know, I'm growing weary in doing good because it didn't quite work out like I thought. Right? Can I suggest that when we say that, we're really confessing a deeper truth. And that is, I serve God so he'll do something for me. I serve God because I want him to bless me in the way I define. And in reality, we serve God because he's God and because of what he has already done and because of what he promises to do if we continue to do good and not lose heart. So number one, God's word never fails. Number two, pride goes before destruction. Proverbs 16. This should be a warning for all of us, and it should be a warning for our nation. We should be prayerful for our nation. We should avoid... And, and honestly, as Christians, we need to keep this in mind. We should avoid this us and them thing with our nation. Right? Even as I say what I've said today, this is our nation. Right? It's not their nation. It's our nation. It's not the nation for the heathens. It's our nation. We're a part of it. And we need to be faithful to pray for our leaders to pray for people we don't necessarily agree with, to pray for people that are lost. They're not the enemy. They're not our antagonists. We should pray for them. So Lord, we do pray for our leaders across this nation. We pray for We pray for its citizens. That in this nation, you would bring about a biblical understanding of right and wrong, of absolute truth, of righteousness. And Lord, yet we know that you said in the latter days people will fall away and so we acknowledge that we recognize that and so for our own lives Lord we ask that you would carry us 
that you would remind us to be thankful, that you would remind us to not be proud, that you would bless us in the way that you determine and in the time that you determine, and that we would not grow weary in doing good. So, Lord, please continue to do that work in our hearts. Guide us and lead us so that we can live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.